phenomenal conservatism is defined by Michael Humer, who has written much in its defense, as the view, which is on your handout, as PC. Quote, if it seems to a subject that S that P, then, in the absence of defeaters, S thereby has some degree of justification for believing that P, close quote. Similar principles with different names have been advocated by others. Uh, epistemic conservatism, advocated by Fumatum, dogmatism, advocated by Pryor, Tucker and White, and the principle of credulity, advocated by Lycan and myself. Whether this doctrine is true depends on how we understand belief, seams, justification and defeaters, and I will consider each of these in turn to see whether there is an understanding of these concepts under which we can get a plausible version of PC. I will then apply these results to the issues of the justification of religious beliefs. While most issues about the nature of belief are not relevant to its justification, there are two relevant issues. The first issue is whether belief is an attitude to a proposition or to a sentence. Although animals and sometimes humans may have beliefs which they do not or cannot put into words, I suggest that when we are concerned with beliefs which can be justified or not justified, a belief is best regarded as fundamentally an attitude to a sentence. By a sentence, I mean a token sentence which has the meaning it has in the language in which it is uttered. The difference between believing a sentence, that is, believing a sentence to be true, and believing a proposition is then the following. In believing a sentence, you must, of course, believe that all its entailments are true. But to believe a sentence, you do not and cannot know what they all are. You need to believe merely the most immediate entailments of the sentence, which I call the mini-entailments of the sentence. There are, you wouldn't understand the sentence unless you understood that it entailed these ones. And it is these latter, the mini-entailments, which alone, together with, in the case of some sentences, paradigm examples of recognisable circumstances in which the sentence would be true, it is these mini-entailments which determine what the sentence means. It is they which make the sentence the sentence it is. What determines whether one sentence P entails another one Q, which it does not mini-entail, is whether there is a chain of mini-entailments from P to Q, that is, P mini-entails R, R mini-entails T, and so on, until we reach Q. Whether there is such a chain depends on facts about the rules of the language beyond the facts which determine what P means, which are fact, these facts beyond the facts which determine which P, what P means are facts external to P. By contrast, a proposition is the proposition it is in virtue of all its logical entailments. In believing a sentence, you believe that the sentence expresses a true proposition, but you may not know which proposition it is in the sense of knowing which are all those entailed propositions which constitute it. But the logical modal properties of a sentence depends on what it or its negation entail, and so properly belong to the proposition which it expresses, and only secondarily to the sentence which expresses it. So, to say that a sentence is necessary is just to say that it expresses a necessary proposition, 
and so it is normally contingent that some sentence is necessary. I say normally because there are some sentences which, if you have the modal concepts, you could not believe without having a belief about their modal status. For example, you couldn't believe the sentence, he is under five feet tall and over six feet tall at the same time, unless you had a belief about its modal status. Of course, the words proposition and sentence are words which have some what imprecise criteria for their application, and so philosophers can tighten up these criteria in whatever ways we choose. But I find this a useful way of understanding these words, and we shall see in due course that there would be a considerable problem with PC if we suppose that it is concerned with belief in a proposition rather than a sentence. The second issue about belief is the issue of the relation between believing a sentence P and believing that P is probable. Clearly to believe that P is not compatible with believing that P is less probable than not P. That is, has a probability less than a half. Also, I suggest, believing that P is very, very probable entails believing that P. So it looks as if there must be some value of probability X between half and one, such that S believes P, if and only if, when S has a belief about P's probability, if and only if S has the belief that P has a probability greater than X. But while our ordinary rules for the use of words are compatible with any such value, we need a sharp concept of belief for present purposes. And I suggest that we get the concept which fits ordinary language the best if we suppose that S believes P, if and only if, S believes that P is more probable than not P, that is, has a probability of greater than a half. I shall understand belief in this way in future. If S believes that the probability that P is X, then I shall say that he believes P with a strength X, or that X, S is degree of his confidence that P is X. Our confidence in some sentence may be less than half, but nevertheless the sentence may play a role in contributing to our other beliefs. If our degree of confidence in P is a third, our degree of confidence in Q is a third, and our degree of confidence in R is a third, and P, Q, and R are, we very strongly believe, probabilistically independent of each other, then, if we are guided by the probability calculus, we will have a degree of confidence of something like 19 over 27 in P or Q or R. Before going further, I must make the obvious point that strengths of beliefs and probabilities of sentences cannot be given exact values except under highly idealized conditions and in some cases where the value is one, naught or half. So I ask my audience to understand all subsequent talk about strengths and probabilities as preceded by very roughly or some value of the order of. Often the most that we can say about the probability of sentences is that the probability of this sentence is greater than the probability of that sentence and the probability of that sentence is small, and the probability of that one is large. Next, what is it for a, it to seem to a subject that P? I assume that it seems is equivalent to it appears, 
And when we are concerned with the deliverances of particular senses, it is equivalent to it looks, it sounds, it feels, etc. There is a comparative sense of these expressions with which we are not concerned. That is, the sense in which the tree looks green means the tree looks the way green things normally look, without any implication that anyone is inclined to believe that the tree is green. Our concern is with the epistemic sense, in which, contingently or necessarily, it's seeming that P leads to a belief or inclination to believe that P. My view is that, in the epistemic sense, seemings just are basic inclinations to believe, of which the subject is aware, which have different strengths. It seems to S that P with a strength X, if and only if, in the absence of other inclinations to believe sentences, which S believes make P more or less probable, S would believe P with that strength. There are arguments in the literature against that view and in favour of a rival view that seemings are sui generis experiences. I discuss these arguments in the written version of this paper, but in this oral version I shall assume my own view for reasons of time. When PC is formulated in terms of such inclinations, it seems more natural to call that principle epistemic rather than phenomenal conservatism. Next, justification, by which is meant epistemic justification. The synchronic justification of a belief at a time t depends on how things are with the believer at t and the immediate causes of her belief. By contrast, the diachronic justification of a belief depends on whether it has been reached as a result of actions which would in some sense probably lead to a just synchronically justified belief, and in particular whether it has been adequately investigated. The concern of those who write about PC is with synchronic and not just diachronic justification, and that will be my concern too. Further, my concern, as is that of most of those who write about PC, is with what is called propositional justification, not doxastic justification. A pro belief is epistemically, propositionally justified, and I have said that I think they had concerned with sentences, but I'm just using the term that's uh, used in the literature to make this distinction. A belief is epistemically propositionally justified insofar as the believer has good reasons or adequate evidence for the content of that belief, that is, on my account, for the sentence believed. By contrast with propositionally justified, a belief is doxastically justified insofar as it, that is, the mental state of believing, is based on those reasons or that evidence. Having some belief at a time t is an involuntary matter, not subject to immediate voluntary control. So a belief cannot be synchronically justified in any sense to which praise or blame are appropriate. A belief being synchronically justified seems to mean no more and no less than that in some sense it's probably true. The sentence which is its content is made probable by some second sentence. For example, a sentence stating the evidence available to the believer or the reliability of the process which produced the belief. The differences between theories of justification 
then lie in what constitutes the relevant second sentence and what are the criteria by which the second sentence makes the first sentence, that is, the content of the belief probable. So I'm concerned with uh, propositional uh, justification and I'm concerned with synchronic justification. Among synchronic theories, there are pure internalist theories, pure externalist theories, and mixed theories. For an internalist, what makes a belief justified are internal factors, that is, ones of which the believer can become aware by introspection. The relevant internal factors are the believer's inclinations of different strengths to believe different sentences, and the criteria by which some sentences make other sentences probable. As phenomenal conservatism is normally advocated within a pure internalist framework, I will consider its rationale solely within that framework. Finally, within that framework, phenomenal conservatism, it seems to me, is normally advocated as a principle designed to assess the justification of a belief by objectively correct internally accessible criteria. By correct criteria, I mean those actual criteria which modern Western humans consider to be the criteria by which some evidence does make some hypothesis probable to some specified degree. These criteria are a priori criteria, since we can derive them by introspection, by reflecting on various examples where evidence obviously makes some hypothesis probable, and when we do, it's quite irrelevant whether those examples are actually occurrent ones or mere thought experiments. We can draw out from reflection on this makes that probable, this makes that probable, what are the criteria at work? And it's an a priori exercise to do that. That there are such a priori criteria seems clear, and I shall assume for the purposes of this paper that they and all other a priori truths are logically necessary truths. I shall call all sentences which are as strongly necessary as that of a simple truth of logic, metaphysically necessary, and those among them whose necessity can be determined a priori, logically necessary. The pure intern on the pure internalist picture, basic inclinations to believe interact. Some defeaters make others less probable. Some, which I will call strengtheners, make others more probable. Basic inclinations to believe isn't a clumsy phrase, and I shall in future abbreviate that to basic inclinations or just inclinations. And I shall assume that each inclination to which I refer is indexed by its strength. Defeaters and strengtheners may or may not lower or raise the probability of some sentence to such an extent that it becomes probable or improbable simpliciter. Basic inclinations which become beliefs are then basic beliefs. The set of his basic inclinations constitutes the subject's total available evidence. Okay, those are the four terms and that's how I'm going to deal with them. Given all this, it then follows from my analysis of seams in terms of basic inclinations that Humer's PC takes the form of this principle of epistemic conservatism, which is on your handout EC1, E for epistemic. On S's evidence that he has a basic inclination P with a strength greater than a half, 
and no defeater, and so believes P, then thereby P has some degree of probability X greater than zero, and so S has some degree of justification for believing that P. That's just translating PC into the terms I have, uh, into the way I've said I'm going to understand the terms. Note crucially that phenomenal conservatism is concerned with the justification and so the probability of S's belief that P, on the evidence that he, that is he himself, believes P, not just on the evidence that S believes P. Someone else could have the latter evidence, but it wouldn't necessarily make P as probable as does the evidence that he himself believes P, makes P's belief. Put in terms of seems, it's the way things seem to me that PC is concerned with, uh, and they should affect my beliefs in a different way from the way in which my beliefs about how, other thing, how things seem to you affect them. Uh, the datum, that is to say, is not just that some person believes this, it's that I am inclined to believe this, and the question is what that makes probable. One reason why EC1 is unsatisfactory is that most sentences, most sentences in the world have, quote, some degree of probability on any evidence at all, whether or not S believes them. What PC was getting at, I assume, was surely that if S seems true, P has a significant degree of probability. And we can deal with this by amending EC1 to EC2. On S's evidence that he has a basic inclination P of strength greater than half and no defeater, and so believes P, then thereby P is probable, that is more probable than not, and so S is justified in believing P. And so more generally, EC3, also on your handout, on S's evidence that he has a basic inclination P of strength S, X and no defeater and no strengthener, and so believes P with a degree of confidence X, then thereby P has a probability X, and so S is justified in believing P with that degree of confidence. Now note the word thereby. The thereby claims that the evidence that S believes P raises the probability of P above its intrinsic probability. By its intrinsic probability, I mean its probability on tautological evidence, that is to say, in the absence of any defeaters or strengtheners. Given that, the thereby in EC2 cannot be generally correct. For any sentence P for which it holds, it will not hold for not P. This is because, given the normal probability axioms, uh, the probability of P on K plus the probability of not P on K equals 1 for any evidence K. And so, uh, also, for when K is simply tautological evidence. So, either P or not P will already be probable in advance of S acquiring the evidence that he believes P. And so, it will not be made probable by that evidence. So, we must admit that they omit the thereby in EC2. Note now that if our inclinations to believe apparent necessary truths were inclinations, if they were inclinations to believe propositions rather than sentences, it would not be possible for those inclinations to increase the probability of those necessary truths. 
For if such propositions are true, given normal probability axioms, they have an intrinsic probability of 1, and so any inclination to believe them cannot increase that probability. And if they are in fact impossible propositions, and so have an intrinsic probability of 0, again, since it is necessary that a proposition which is impossible is impossible, nothing can increase that probability. Yet it does rather look as if my inclination to believe some simple arithmetical formula, for example, that 7, 6 is a 42, does increase its probability. It's more likely that uh, it's true if it seems to me true than if it doesn't seem to me true. And if, as I am claiming, our inclinations are believed inclinations to believe sentences, then an inclination can increase the probability that a sentence expresses a necessary proposition. This is because it's normally a contingent matter whether some necessary or contingent sentence is true. In the case of most sentences expressing apparent necessary truths, whether they do express necessary truths depends on their remote entailments which in turn depends on the rules of the language governing the meanings of other sentences. And what those rules are is a contingent matter. But to repeat the point made earlier, the probability of a proposition is what it is, independently of the rules of the language. These rules merely determine which proposition a sentence expresses. If we insist on claiming that evidence can increase the probability of a necessary proposition, we would have to invoke or construct a non-Bayesian probability calculus which allows us to claim this. But if inclinations to believe are inclinations to believe sentences, there's no need to do this. And that's why, among other reasons, why I suggest that we regard inclinations as inclinations to believe sentences. There are, however, some sentences which express necessary truths in virtue of the rules governing their own meanings and not those of the sentences which they remotely entail. These are sentences such as all squares have four sides or one plus one equals two, and inclinations to believe them cannot increase their probability, which is therefore one. You couldn't understand them without believing them, and therefore um, uh, you will see that they are necessarily true, if you even understand them. Hence, in the case of these sentences, these latter sentences, the thereby in EC3 also doesn't apply, because in the case of these sentences, uh, they will have the probability they do, and it will not be increased by uh, one's inclination to believe it. All that having been said, what determines this intrinsic probability of sentences? We're concerned with uh, EC3. Two and three uh, say that the uh, express uh, th this uh, conservatism in terms of the uh, in inclination to believe propositions, increasing them from their intrinsic probability. I put quite a lot of qualifications on that, but given that, what determines the intrinsic probability of sentences? As for all probabilities of sentences, so especially for intrinsic probabilities, Often the most that we can say is that the probability of this sentence is greater than the probability of that sentence, and that the probability of that sentence is small and the probability of this one is large. 
But with that enormous qualification, I suggest that there are certain criteria which restrict the values of intrinsic probabilities within limits and sometimes determine them. Those sentences of kinds which I have just discussed, whose meaning does determine their truth value, have the intrinsic probabilities which I have just stated. The intrinsic probability of other sentences which, although we may not know it, express logically necessary or logically impossible propositions, must be less than one and greater than zero, because otherwise the EP thesis would not apply to them. I suggest, my suggestion for these sentences, which may be logically necessary or impossible, only if we don't know that, I suggest that the more difficult it would be to prove such a sentence necessary by showing that it's entailed by a sentence with an intrinsic probability of one, the lower is its intrinsic probability, and the more difficult it would be to prove such a sentence impossible, the higher is its intrinsic probability. These difficulties are functions of the minimum number of mini-entailments necessary to prove the requisite modality. We may not know what that is in any particular case, but we may know that the number must be greater than a certain number. For example, we know that far more mini-entailments would be needed to prove that Goldbach's conjecture is true than, a, than, than that are needed to prove that there is no greatest prime number. So the intrinsic probability of Goldbach's conjecture is lower than that of the sentence, there is no greatest prime number. I suggest, that these criteria, I suggest these criteria because intuitions about logical modality are intuitions to the effect that there are such chains of mini-entailments, and so the longer they make bigger claims, the more mini-entailments are required, and for that reason are more likely to be mistaken. And here are some of the criteria which we use to determine the relative intrinsic probability of logically contingent sentences. That is, the probabilities of one sen sentence relative to another one. A sentence which tells you more about the a sentence P which tells you more about the world than a sentence Q must be less probable than Q. Again, the more you say, the more you are likely to make a mistake. Thus, a conjunction of two logically independent conjuncts is less probable than either of the conjuncts separately. There are enormous problems about how to measure which of two logically independent sentences gives you more information about the world, but the basic intuition that the more it claims, the less probable a sentence is surely remains. And there are innumerable examples of pairs of sentences such, as, such that it is fairly clear that each of them gives the same amount of information about the world. For example, two sentences, each of which ascribes the same property to an object of the same size, to a different object of the same size. And the one which provides, an, and one which provides more information than another, sorry, two senses, each of which ascribes the same property to a different object of the same size. I will say that two sentences which provide the same amount of information have the same scope, and one which provides more information than another has greater scope. I suggest further that all logically contingent existential sentences have a lower intrinsic probability than their negations, and so have probabilities less than a half. 
quote, there is an elephant in my garden, has a lower intrinsic probability than it is not the case that there is an elephant in my garden. And so the latter cannot be made probable by any, made probable by any basic inclination, although its probability can be increased by one. Hence, the latter must have an intrinsic probability greater than half. Then, secondly, a simpler hypothesis, and I understand by a simpler hypothesis, one which postulates few entities, few kinds of entities, few properties, few kinds of properties, and mathematically simple relations between them. A simpler hypothesis um, uh, Um, which could explain more phenomena uh, is more probable intrinsically than a complicated hypothesis which would explain fewer phenomena. And it follows from that that a conjunction of n sentences of the same scope, each of which could be explained by the same simple hypothesis, is more probable than a conjunction of n sentences, each of the same scope as the former ones, which could not be so explained. Thus, it's intrinsically more probable that all the positions occupied by Mars lie on an ellipse than that they lie on a curve of enormous mathematical complexity. So, I am suggesting, and again, this is we can only get at this by reflecting on innumerable kinds of examples, and in many cases we'll be uncertain as to what we want to say, but in some cases it'll be clear. I'm suggesting the criteria of their scope and simplicity, and the simplicity of any hypothesis which could explain them, determine the intrinsic probability of logically contingent sentences. These criteria would also apply to any logically necessary sentences, if there were to be any such, which make existential claims. And so they would interact with the ones described previously, which govern logically necessary sentences. And I have no general formula for how that's to be done. Having thus suggested what is the most plausible version of epistemic conservatism and filled out what what we're at when talking about intrinsic probability, why should we believe the ET theses, two and three, qualified by omitting thereby from them in the relevant places which I indicated? Most of our inclinations to believe sentences come with a mark of their source. Inclinations are either experiential inclinations or non-experiential inclinations. And the latter, non-experiential inclinations, divide into intuitions and mixed inclinations. That is, ones, the latter are ones which come to us as logically or probabilistically dependent on both experiential inclinations and intuitions. By experiential inclinations, I mean inclinations to believe sentences because we are inclined to believe that we are in contact with the state of affairs described in the sentence. I don't just believe that there's a tree outside the window, I believe that I see it or remember having seen it. Experiential inclinations include apparent introspections, apparent perceptions and apparent memories. Our apparent memories include apparent memories of having inferred by apparently correct criteria some sentence from our own experiential inclinations. 
and they include apparent memories of the testimony of others and apparent memories that we have learnt some information from testimony, even if we cannot remember whose testimony it was. And the testimony of others from whom we have learnt these things, normally, we believe, depends on their memories of the testimony of yet others. And since we depend for our justification on all, of almost all our beliefs, deriving from introspection and perception on our memory of them, all our, almost all our justified beliefs derive their justification from memories, and often from memories of memories of memories. Okay, that's what I mean by experiential inclinations. They're, they are inclination to believe we're in contact. We believe something because we've been in contact with it, but for these purposes we rely on introspection, perception, and above all, memory. And the memory may, in a complicated way, bring in other experiential inclinations and also what I am now going to describe, intuitions. By intuitions, I mean those inclinations to believe sentences, not because we're in contact with the state of affairs described, but because the sentences seem to wear their truth on their face. They come to us as necessary truths of reason. They include all the relatively simple logical and conceptual truths which we believe, such as if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then A is greater than C, and also the inductive principles which we believe, such as that any hypothesis about some subject matter is more probable insofar as it yields more true and no false predictions. Our inclinations to believe these things are the result of intuitions, as I define intuition. And finally, there are inclinations to believe sentences which arise from both of the former kinds of inclination operating together. They are those inclinations which we hold with a certain degree of strength because we believe that they are made probable by correct criteria to that degree by experiential inclinations and would not otherwise be probable. <coughs> Our reliance on the testimony of others about historical and scientific matters depends on a belief itself dependent on remembered testimony, although we cannot remember whose testimony it was, depends on a belief that they have derived their conclusions by inference from apparent memories of their perceptual inclinations by apparently correct criteria. It is, for almost all of us, because we have such inclinations of considerable strength that we believe such general truths about geography, history and science, such as that the Earth is spherical or that there have been humans on Earth for several thousand years. If I am justified in believing all these things today, despite any defeaters which I may remember, then that justification is but provided by the simple fact that I apparently remember them today. Now, if in the absence of defeaters, my apparent memory of having seen or learnt or calculated these things did not give a significantly prob significant probability greater than half to that present memory, and most of the memories of others, most of the contents of our experiential inclinations, and especially those very general ones, would be improbable, improbable on our evidence. And that is implausible. And if that present apparent memory of all those past acquisitions of knowledge does give a significant probability to what we apparently remember, the same should apply to all our apparent memories of similar strength. 
And if most of our apparent memories must have probabilities greater than a half, surely our beliefs apparently reached by introspection or perception must be yet more probable. So I suggest that EC3 and so EC2, duly qualified, are in general plausible for experiential inclinations, in the respect that S is evidence that P makes P probable to the stated degree. Sorry, S is evidence, that is, he's believing it, makes P probable to the stated degree. It is also the case that the basic experiential inclinations raise the probability of sentences about <coughs> of the sentences above what it would be without it. They make it probable and they increase its probability. Similar considerations apply to our intuitions of apparent necessary truths. If it was not possible that these apparent necessary truths are necessary, if it was not probable that these apparent necessary truths are necessary, then most of our beliefs about contingent matters which we believe because we believe they are made probable by the contents of the experiential inclinations of ourselves and others would not be probable, which again is highly implausible. So it's very probable that EP3 and EP2 apply to our intuitions as well as to our experiential inclinations, and so to inclinations which depend on inclinations of both these kinds. <coughs> Given that it is in general plausible to suppose that EC3 and EC2 hold for both kinds of basic inclinations, there may nevertheless be reasons why they may hold more strongly or weakly for sentences of particular kinds. That is, make sentences of particular kinds believed more or less probable than the norm. Not contingent reasons, of course. We have all sorts of contingent reasons for believing that what is probable on certain evidence is not really probable because we're not in a position to know this sort of thing or whoever told us that is not in a position to know this sort of thing or we've got other evidence that it's false. Um, the sort of evidence I'm talking about or reasons I'm talking about now are a priori reasons for believing that sentences of particular kinds are more or less probable than the norm. To bring out what these reasons are, I invoke Bayes' theorem. Familiar, I'm sure, to all of you, but I put it on the handout. I assume that where P is some hypothesis and E is some piece of evidence and K is our background evidence, all in the form of sentences, Bayes' theorem states correctly the posterior probability, P of P on E and K, as a function of the likelihood of H as on the handout, and the prior probability of H. Being completely general, Bayes' theorem must hold however we divide the evidence between E and K. If we put all the relevant evidence into E and leave K as an obvious tautology, then P of P on K measures the intrinsic probability of P. I have considered some of the factors which determine intrinsic probabilities of sentences. It follows from Bayes' theorem that the greater the intrinsic probability, the greater the posterior probability, all things, other things being equal. That is, the probability which E gives to P. Now let E be the evidence that S has an experiential inclination to believe that P is true. It follows from Bayes' theorem 
that for any given likelihood, the greater the intrinsic probability, the greater the posterior probability, that is the probability which E gives to P. The likelihood of P will exceed 1 if it's more probable that S will believe P if P is true than if P is false. It is probable that someone's belief reported by E will be sensitive to the state of affairs believed, which I have Sorry, a rather lot of P's got, on, got into the formulae, which uh, I agree confuses things, but uh, we're all intelligent people and you can note the difference between uh, a lowercase p and a capital P and a P star. I'm sorry for that, it's a bit confusing. It's probable that someone's belief reported by E will be sensitive to the state of affairs believed, P star, reported by lowercase p, if and only if it's probable that the state reported by P star causes, totally or partly, the state reported by E, or the state reported by E causes P star, or they have a common cause. Considering what will, what will make it the case that the uh, likelihood is greater than 1, that is the probability that E will be true if... Uh, S believes E, rather than just uh, the probability will be true anyway. The experiential inclinations are all ones where S is inclined to believe that P is inclined... The experiential inclinations are all ones where S is inclined to believe that P star causes the state reported by E. That is, that the event of P being true causes S to believe that P is true. My inclination to believe that there is a tree outside the window when I apparently perceive it is, I believe, that inclination, is caused by the tree being outside the window. Given that believers get the relevant posterior probability largely correct, we must suppose that they make more or less correct judgments both about the intrinsic probability of P and its likelihood. <coughs> And of course, I have argued that in general we must suppose they get the relevant posterior probability right, and so we must suppose that in general they make correct judgments about the intrinsic probability and the uh, likelihood. And as I say, we can, however, to some extent discover the intrinsic probability of P by the criteria which I've described. And there are also sometimes a priori reasons for believing that P star does, does or does not have much causal influence on the event reported by E. Reasons for believing that um, <laughs> we're not much more likely to have the belief if uh, the state of affairs which we believe to hold uh, does hold or if it doesn't hold. And these a priori considerations are, for example, the following. The fewer, the shorter, and the more direct are the causal chains required for S to acquire the belief that P, when P is true, and the more, the longer, and the less direct are the causal chains required to believe S to believe P when it's false, the more probable it is a priori that any causal influence of the event reported by P will be transmitted to S. This is because in these cases there will be less scope for any rival causal influence to interfere with the transmission. The 
if you have a belief about something which is immediately in front of you, the desk, um, uh, it, and uh, it is a belief about that it's immediately in front of you, the causal chain from the desk to your belief is short. Whereas if you have a belief about something two miles away, which you claim to be able to see, um, your belief that the causal chains involved are long, and therefore it is less likely, uh, it's more likely that you'll get it wrong, and therefore it's uh, the uh, likelihood will be higher the shorter the chains, the more direct the chains, and the fewer the chains. And that's why, for example, we are right to trust apparent perceptions of near objects much more than apparent memories of having perceived such objects. And there is also one case where we can know a priori that the state of affairs believed cannot cause the belief that it's occurred. That, given the logical impossibility of backward causation, is when the state of affairs believed is a future uncaused state. So in some cases, some cases, we may know enough about the intrinsic probability of a sentence and also its likelihood to conclude the subject believing it to some degree X in fact makes it less probable than X, or perhaps even more probable than X. But since our criteria for determining intrinsic probability and likelihood are derived on the assumption that most ordinary beliefs are as probable as we believe them to be, we can only reach such conclusions for some experiential beliefs of less usual kinds. That is to say, we can derive the uh, general criteria for what makes what how probable by reflecting on innumerable kinds of examples, and uh, that will give us these criteria, and these criteria will show that sometimes uh, it must be the case that the intrinsic probability is lower or higher than somebody believes it to be, and so must the uh, likelihood, so that, in fact, uh, EP, uh, the EC principles, don't work for that case. The a priori reasons for now... Uh, I've made the point with regard to uh, experiential inclinations. I now come on to intuitions. The a priori reasons for believing that an intuition that a P is true makes it probable that S will believe it are not reasons about the extent of causal influence, because sentences don't have causal influence. But the harder it would be to prove P or its negation, and that depends, you'll recall, on the length of any proof thereof, the lower the likelihood. And these are the same considerations as those which determine the intrinsic probability of P. They're both considerations of how difficult it would be to prove. The more difficult it is to prove, then, if you accept my earlier argument, the lower will be its intrinsic uh, probability. Uh, but uh, the more difficult it is to prove, uh, clearly, the more likely you are to get it wrong. So they, they operate together in the case of intuitions. If the one is high, so is the other. So again, in some cases, we may know enough about the intrinsic probability of a sentence and its likelihood to conclude that a subject believing it to some degree X in fact makes it less probable than X, or again, sometimes more probable than X. But again, 
Since our criteria for determining intrinsic probability and the likelihood are derived on the assumption that most ordinary beliefs are as probable as we believe them to be, we can only reach such conclusions for some experiential beliefs and some intuitions of less usual kinds. Now, apply all this to religious beliefs at last. And this is the last paragraph on your handout. Suppose someone finds themselves holding a religious belief, not on the basis of an argument, because they have an experiential inclination, not an intuition, an experiential inclination to believe that it's true. Consider, first, the simplest such belief, the belief that there is a God. That needs to be spelt out a lot more fully before we can assess it, and I suppose it to be done in such terms as there is an essentially omnipotent person who sustains the universe in existence, or something like that. It being an experiential intuition means that believers believe it. Because they believe, they are caused to hold it as a result of some sensitivity to the presence of God, either directly or via the created world which God keeps in being. For example, in seeing the beauty of nature, they see it as created by God. In a very wide sense of perceive, they believe they perceive God, albeit very dimly. This experiential belief is obviously the result of a different kind of apparent perception from the normal kind, and for that reason perhaps it cannot be taken for granted that EC3 applies to the same degree as it does to most of our ordinary perceptual beliefs. But it's not the result of a very different kind of apparent perception. It's an apparent perception of a kind, although the object's very different, it's an apparent perception of a kind similar to that by which blind people sometimes seem to be aware of the presence of another person in the room. And so the fact that EC3 governs experiential inclinations of all familiar kinds must give a significant probability to the claim that it governs religious perceptual beliefs. Or, put another way, it makes it very probable that it applies to them to a reduced extent. For example, if we just take this point of the dissimilarity to some extent between the uh, kinds of perception involved, maybe if there is a God is a basic inclination with a strength of two-thirds, then perhaps it gives a probability of a half to there is a God. Or rather, this will hold, in the absence of any a priori reason, to suppose that its intrinsic probability relative to other basic positions, propositions, other basic sentences, or its likelihood are very high or very low. However, as it were, initially one might say, well, there's the disanalogy and therefore the probability must be lower. But um, let's move on a bit further to two considerations which suggest that uh, it might even, in fact, be higher than in the normal case. Um, I argued, I have argued elsewhere, and some of you may know that I've argued this elsewhere, and uh, some of you may disagree with it. But um, uh, I have argued elsewhere at considerable length that although log all logically contingent existential sentences have very low intrinsic probabilities, there is a God has a higher intrinsic probability than that of almost any other contingent existential sentence. And this is because it makes a very simple claim 
postulating just one substance, definable by two or three properties to which there are zero limits, and it is such that, if it is true, it would explain innumerable other phenomena. And, that, and although for that reason it has great scope, it's concerned with a lot, uh, the practice of science shows that great simplicity outweighs great scope in determining intrinsic probability. That is, we believe a relatively simple theory of physics, even though it has consequences for all of possibly infinite space. So, um, it's rather crucial here what you understand the intrinsic probability of there is a God to be. And if you uh, go along with the line I have been taking, then it's going to be very higher than almost any other contingent sentence. Now, what about the uh, likelihood? Um, is it probable that if there is a God, we would be likely to believe it? God is by definition perfectly good, and just as a good father has considerable reason to interact with his children, so God has considerable reason to interact with the rational beings, if he exists, that is. So God has considerable reason to interact with the rational beings whom he has created, and so to make his presence known to them, not merely by inference from the world, but directly. Of course, there are also reasons why he might not make his presence known, e.g. to allow us to become, make more moral choices more easily. But nevertheless, Reflection on what a good, omnipotent creator would do suggests a significant probability that he would make his presence known. It is surely much more probable a priori that God would make his presence known to rational beings than that more or less any other object, such as a planet or a tortoise, would make their presence known. Uh, I mean, there would have to be all sorts of special laws of nature and we'd have to be made in a certain way for all that to happen. But... Um, in the case of God, he doesn't depend on any of these things to make his presence known. So, if there, um, I'm suggesting that if there is a God, there's a quite high probability that we would, in fact, uh, perceive him. Um, if there is no God, is it probable that we would believe that there is no God? I can't see that there's any... Oh, sorry, is it, if there is no God, is it probable we would believe that there is a God? I can't see that there's any significant a priori probability of this, though of course there may, might be psychological evidence that this is likely to happen, but again, uh, we're not concerned with that sort of empirical evidence because that counts as defeaters and that's not what we're concerned with. So, if I am right in my bold claim about its intrinsic probability, and my not-so-bold claim, and I think fairly evident claim about its uh, likelihood, um, both the intrinsic probability and the likelihood of an experiential inclination to believe that there is a God are significantly higher than those of any other existential sentences. And these considerations mean that this particular religious sentence, there is a God, even though it's reached by an unusual kind of experiential inclination, is such that, for S, on S's evidence that he has a basic experiential inclination to believe it, of a strength X and no defeater, has a significant probability of something like X. And that's on your handout. 
For more detailed religious claims, such as God commanded me to preach to Nineveh, or God wants me to kill all non-Muslims, the intrinsic probability must be much lower, and the likelihood may also be different. For example, God commanded me to preach to Nineveh couldn't be true unless he ensured that I heard the command, and so the probability that I would believe it is one, though of course I might try to hide my this belief from myself. So, EC3 requires further qualifications to take account of the what we can reasonably infer, if anything, about the intrinsic probability and the likelihood in both cases, simply on our priori grounds. Now, come on, coming on to intuitions. Suppose now that someone believes there is a God, spelled out in the way before, as a result of an intuition, and so he believes that it expresses a logically necessary proposition. Now, there's no reason for treating a belief about this purported logically necessary truth any differently from any other beliefs about purported logically necessary truth. That's to say, there isn't the slight disanalogy between the kind, as there is between the kinds of perception, between the kinds of intuition involved. I have claimed that there is a God has a higher intrinsic probability than other contingent existential sentences. But if it were logically necessary, that would have the consequence that its intrinsic pro probability would be much higher still. It would only be logically necessary if there were a chain of mini-entailments from its negation to a contradiction. Like many other philosophers since Kant, I believe there are powerful arguments to show that there could be no such chain, and so there is a God could not be logically necessary. In that case, no intuition of necessary truths would make it any more probable that this sentence is true. But even if these purported demonstrations of the logical impossibility of a sound ontological argument are themselves not sound, it seems clear that if words are used in the same sense by all speakers of the language, and so they know the many entailments of all sentences which they consider, and if they are honest in their assessment of what is mini-entailed by some sentence. Then, if there is a chain of mini-entailments from there is no God to a contradiction, it must be a very long one. But the absence of agreement about the soundness of any such proof shows that at some stage the proof relies on some intuition of an entailment by some advocate of the proof, relies on some intuition of an entailment which is not spelt out in terms of many entailments which would be accessible to all speakers of the language. Hence, if such intuitions can be spelt out in many terms of many entailments, the chain must be very long. And that in turn indicates that the intrinsic probability, intrinsic probability of there is a God cannot be much larger than the, that of the average mathematical conjecture. That is, so far unproven but suggested mathematical theorem. For such conjectures have not been proved by long chains of many entailments. Sorry, I'll repeat that. Uh, the fact that uh, you haven't got uh, a proof which everybody can recognise uh, suggests that the proofs offered uh, rely on some intuitions which aren't shared, and uh, that means that some intuitions about there being certain parts of a, a chain of many entailments 
uh, has, hasn't been spelt out in ways that all speakers of the language can understand, which they ought to be able to understand if the words and the language are being used in the same sense. Now that suggests that the intrinsic probability of there is a God um, uh, uh, must be smaller than that of any proven mathematical theorem. And it cannot be much larger than that of the average mathematical conjecture. And we saw earlier that the longer a chain of many entailments which would be needed to prove some intuition, the lower is the intrinsic probability of what is purportedly intuited. And since, for reasons given earlier, in the case of intuitions, a lower intrinsic probability goes with a lower likelihood, it follows that the probability given to there is a God by an intuition of its truth must be something like the probability given to Goldbach's conjecture by someone's intuition that it is true. And that would follow if the arguments against the possibility of ontological arguments fail. Uh, the most that were, uh, it would have a lower intrinsic probability than that of any proven mathematical theorem. It will follow, I believe, for similar reasons that more complicated religious intuitions, such as that God is three persons of one substance, would have lower intrinsic probabilities and lower likelihoods than does there is a God. In short, I suggest that while in general the EC theses must apply to the intuition there is that there is a God, they must make that sentence less probable than do intuitions about many other matters, whereas experiential inclinations to believe that there is a God give that sentence as high a probability as do experiential inclinations to believe any other sentence, and possibly a higher one. And that is my conclusion, which I didn't put on the handout uh, for some reason. Um, and to repeat it, it is that in the case of reported intuitions, intuitions of some proof that there is a God, or intuitions that it's obviously necessary, um, uh, that's... Uh, and uh, on the assumption that uh, uh, nobody's proved you can't have an ontological argument of that kind, uh, nevertheless, um, these intu uh, um, the intuitions, uh, the uh, uh, intuitions must make the se that sentence there is a god less probable than intuitions about many other matters, whereas experiential inclinations to believe that there is a god give that sentence as high a probability as experiential inclinations to believe any other sentence, and possibly a higher one. But in conclusion, I must also point out that the EC theses are concerned with what one is justified in believing in the absence of other rele relevant inclinations, and that most of us have lots of defeaters and lots of strengtheners to our inclinations to believe that there is a God, or to believe that there is no God, and to all other religious beliefs. And while the probability resulting from any experiential inclinations and intuitions will make some difference to the probability that there is a God, in my view, for many of us these days, our assessment of the force of arguments for, of arguments for and against the existence of God has, and rightly has, a much greater influence on the probability which we ascribe to the existence of God. Thank you.